according to St. Matthew, the second chapter, beginning at the 13th verse. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what has been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Herod the Great was not all that great. I know I'm going out on a limb, especially after our readings here this morning, But as someone who's been trained as a historian, it's best practice when you find somebody in history called the great. More often than not, they're compensating for something. They're probably not all that great. And and Herod definitely was not that great. And Chad Bird, a, a theologian, reminded me of this this week when he outlined this passage a little bit, uh, sharing how Herod, for instance, he was a great builder. He built a lot of things during his reign. He he rebuilt the glory of the temple in Jerusalem, for instance. What we know is the second temple. What what everyone's glorying in in the the New Testament, it was Herod's work. But then he also built the the fortress at Masada. He founded Caesarea Maritima on on the coast of the Mediterranean. He wanted his name to be in lights. He wanted to be awesome. He wanted all the grandeur of all the kings that had gone before him, even more if he could, But like most of us, all of our greatness, all the things that we think make us so awesome, they kind of pale in comparison to our sins usually. In today's world, we call it cancel culture, right? You can do amazing things, but then something comes up, somebody finds out something that you did 20 years ago, and the next thing you know, you're fired or something. I don't know. It's, It's not all that great. But here we have Herod. He was not a nice guy. 
He, he was afraid of losing his position as king. He was not born into the kingship. He was given it. It was a gift to him by Caesar. At first he was tetrarch, and then he was given the title of king. He wasn't even Jewish, but he wanted to be king of the Jews, which is part of the reason why he had no clue about the prophecy of the Messiah. He had to ask the priests and the Levites and the scribes, tell me about this Messiah dude. Where is he supposed to be born? So he can find out where. He didn't know those sorts of things. But also, uh, he's not a nice guy because he had three of his sons killed. You know, that's that's probably puts you up there with not being nice, right? That puts him on Santa's naughty list. Had a wife killed along with her mother and, and grandfather. And when he died, he actually left orders for there to be a purge of a large percentage of the Jewish elders so that uh, the mourning in, in Jerusalem would be so great, even though it would be over the elders, everyone would be weeping so he could pretend in his death that people were crying for him. So in other words, we're talking about a psychopath, right? People would be making a documentary about him on you know, discovery or whatever of one of these serial killer type things. It'd be true crime drama type thing about Herod. Not a great guy. So it's no wonder that when a new king is announced to him, a king that was given the title of king of the Jews at birth, he's going to do whatever he can to get rid of that king. He's already tried before killing some sons. He's going to get rid of somebody else if anybody's going to encroach on his awesomeness. So Herod seeks to destroy the child. Why? It's a child. It's a baby. Is there a worse crime? taking someone so small, so innocent, and killing them out of fear. Well, every king, most kings anyways, rarely desire not to continue to be king. Am I right? You become king, you get a little bit of power and influence, you kind of want to hold on to that. Or get even more. Maybe if, maybe if you're king, then you're going to shoot for being emperor. And then if not emperor, then God. Right? Look at Caesar. The announcement of a new king to a current king, even a future baby king, it's basically an attack on the status quo. It's an attack on Herod of what he has right now. You, you don't have to be a king or a celebrity or a politician to feel this. Uh, imagine if you would, and this shouldn't be too hard after the last two years, if you found out tomorrow that life as you know it, life that you have become accustomed to, were to change forever. Not just temporarily, but forever. Never to be the same again. This, you know, this should come as a shock to some of you, because most of you are Lutherans. Don't lie to me. Change is a four-letter filth word to you. I know this because I can look around the room, and I can usually know who's here for church, because you're sitting in the same seat. You park in the same parking spot. You probably eat the same thing after church. I don't know. <laughs> Change is why, for instance, the management of this pandemic has, has caused people to, say, punch out flight attendants, right? Or, or yell at servers in, in restaurants or, or scream at school board meetings uh, or, or what we have happening in the country, what the country's experiencing right now called the Great Resignation where people are leaving the current job they have to get a different job because they actually believe that the grass is going to be greener somewhere else, so they want 
back to what life was. And so they leave this job in hopes that this new job will be different, but then they find out, well, no, the pandemic that was here is also over here. Nothing has really changed, which is why depression is on the rise, for instance, in our country. In Herod, what we should see is ourselves taken to the logical, sinful conclusion. Attempts to be the uh, captains of our fate, for instance. That's what Herod, in some ways, is trying to do. Here, Herod seeks the destruction of a rival, but subconsciously, it is that, that constant human attempt from the beginning of time to destroy God. We, we tried when we ate of the fruit in the garden, because the lie that was told to us, if we eat of this, will become like God. So if we just eat this fruit, things are going to be awesome. Then they turn out to not be so awesome. For Herod, as well as for us, I think, we need to realize that sinners are actually forgetters. We forget things all the time. For instance, we forget that we were told that God raises up kings and tears them down. That's one of the things that we're told. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten that there's somebody greater than him. And Daniel has to remind him, no, God raises up kings and tears them down, O king. You are king right now, he says to him, because God has made it so. But God could change that tomorrow if he wanted to. And so it is with us, it is with Herod. If, if God raises and tears down kings, what fears might we have if our lives were to change? Change for maybe not the better tomorrow. Or here, how about this one? What if one were to come preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? The one who is spoken of as the name above all names to which every knee will bow, including kings. The one Jesus to which we, in all our cries for freedom and liberty as Americans, we find ourselves that we are just beggars who fall down at the feet of Christ, knowing he is the king of glory and we're not. It's for these attitudes, for the sin, that we find God actually working through tragedy, working through sin, working through threats, to, to preserve his promised redemption for the change haters, because maybe one of the things that we worry about change is that God might not be there if something changes. The wise men leave, they escape Herod, and the Lord sends a dream to Joseph again in order to rescue his promise. The dream says, go to Egypt to protect this child. So amid what looks like death and suffering, Christ seems to run away. But in this, we find God actually fulfilling his promise. God sends Jacob to Egypt in Genesis 46. We heard that this morning because he already sent Jacob's son Joseph there to protect the people of the promise from famine. Israel leaves behind the promised land. They, they, they go to a foreign land for a time. Here, here we have Christ basically walking in the shoes of Israel to preserve the promise for us escaping a premature death so that he might die the right death at the right time for you. Just as Israel went to Egypt 
They suffered under Pharaoh. They, they sought redemption for 400 years and thought God had forgotten them. So too, Christ goes to Egypt, Egypt to be the fulfillment of the life of Israel, to actually be Israel for you so that the promise of God will continue and be handed to you. And so, so we get one fulfillment, that, that word that we have, out of Egypt I've called my son, it says. In other words, the embodiment of the Exodus, the embodiment of Charlton Heston in all his glory, leading the people out of Egypt, plagues, all that stuff. That's Jesus. Jesus being the Hebrews coming, coming out after the plagues. Jesus being the Red Sea that parts so the people of God might walk on dry land. Jesus being the provision for them as they wander in the wilderness. In fact, what that tells you is he's your exodus. He's your way out. He's your escape. He's your path out of all your fears and failures, your redemption from the prison of your mortality, the prison of your change-hating, your, your savior from your sins, from your death, from your enemies. Well, with that kind of power lying there in that little baby, leave it to Herod, though, to do the only thing that Herod could do. Uh, doing the math, he sends his soldiers, right? His, uh, and he's like, okay, just, we're going to cover all our bases two years and younger. Kill them all. Just all of them. Doesn't matter. All of them. So he sends them to Bethlehem and the region around it to take care of them. And I think that's what a sinner would do when the one comes to defeat sin and put the sinner to death. Because we in our sinfulness, we don't want to die. We in our humanness, we don't want to die. But what we have to learn is that Christ comes to actually put us to death, to raise us up again in him. Herod tries and fails to kill Christ. He tries and fails to kill God himself but not before he shows the extreme sinfulness of sin. Innocence murdered to quell the fears of a madman. And so this story should help you a little bit this morning, especially in your first world American lives, uh, to know that, for instance, sin is not missing the mark. You've probably all heard that sermon before. It's not a mistake. It's not some sort of just slight little negligence. It's not speeding. It's not driving in the left-hand lane, the speed limit. It's an enemy. It's a disease. It's a cancer. It's the destroyer of hope. It's something that has to be destroyed itself. And so Christ, Jesus himself, comes in and soaks up all your iniquities. He has to put them to death on the cross for you, leaving them buried in the grave so as to hand you a new future in him. A new change, because you are a sinner who's been bought at a price. Matthew gives us another fulfillment here from Jeremiah 31. Uh, as Lutherans, we love Jeremiah 31, especially near the end. Right, Pastor? Yeah. But here, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The original, this original prophecy was, was written as, as speaking of the time of the exile, where the Israelites were conquered and left to be deported out of the promised land, left to think that everything is lost, that, that, that being a child of God, a child of the promise was gone. Well, 
in a sense also the hope of the Messiah, the, the hope of redemption. Matthew uses it to eulogize these kids. But I think exile works for both. In some ways, this passage should remind us that, that just as the Israelites are a people of, of sojourn, they're a people of wandering and waiting, so are we. They, they were wandering until the fulfillment of the promised future of God with the promised land, the coming of the Messiah, all those things. So are we. What we have in Matthew 2 is everything God does to preserve his promises, even while his own creation does its worst to try and thwart his saving work. But in Jesus, nothing, and I repeat, nothing, no genocide or infanticide or global pandemic will keep God from doing his work. Because if we actually continue reading the next two verses in Jeremiah 31, in verses 16 and 17, it says, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your works, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. And then hear this. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. A hope for your future. Even in your tearful worries, a hope for your future which has been opened in Jesus. All can seem lost and the worst of the worst sins of all the world can fall upon you and yet the hope of Jesus Christ is that you shall never be lost. Everything else? Yes. Problem. You? No. That's the promise. Because even in the death of innocent babies in Bethlehem, God is still the resurrector. He's still the one who raises the dead. Sinners may kill and they will. But God gets the last laugh on that day when he thumbs his nose at the chains of sin and death and breaks them. He thumbs his nose at the grave. He thumbs his nose at all the changes that we fear. And he says, no, I'm going to make change for the good for you. This especially comes to us in our last verse. Where we're told of, we're told of one more prophecy fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. And I'm not talking about the ones across the street. Well, maybe. No. Commentators are divided here because this reference is not found anywhere really in the Old Testament as a prophecy about the coming Messiah per se. But the word for Nazarene, Nazarah, sounds a lot like Netzer. A Hebrew word. And Netzer is the word for shoot or branch. Church, where have we heard that during Advent? The shoot, the branch of Jesse, right? Isaiah 11. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, like we do. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. A newness comes in this Jesus. A newness comes in this Nazarene. A newness comes in this shoot. A new future of righteousness. A new future of the fear of the Lord, of peace and of life for you. 
where all that we know is turned on its head. It, it goes on to talk about wolves lie down with lambs and lions and calves have a picnic together where they're both eating straw. K- kids play with snakes. And then we have these words, they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A new future in Jesus for you. That's what comes in that Bethlehem stable. That's what comes in all these prophecies fulfilled of him for you. In that, in that branch out of the old dead stump of your sin and death comes Jesus sprouting forth in resurrection for you. Yes, change is hard. Change is bad sometimes. But that doesn't mean it isn't good in Jesus for you. But the one who came for you in the manger, this one who goes down to Egypt and comes out again, this one who dies and rises, this one, your Jesus, he shall come again, he promised. He came once, he'll do it again. And he'll take every sin, every fear of change, and he's going to squash it. And all will be left is you and me and him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who changes all things for good. May that be so for you, church. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.